update on President Trump's legal case against the feds on the Mar-a-Lago raid. Also, if you're trying to expose the hospitals that mutilate children in the name of transgenderism, the American Medical Association wants the government to put you in jail. We got the receipts. And if you have a family member who still trusts the government and the medical establishment on the China virus, we have the perfect article for you. It's an information overload Monday on this special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 251 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Monday, October 3rd, 2022. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners. Most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. On August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, Go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. All right. Last Thursday afternoon, late afternoon last Thursday, there was an update in the Mar-a-Lago case, and hardly anybody... Mainstream media or conservative media has talked about it. And I, I didn't talk about it the first few days because first few days all I had with the, was the UK Guardian had a, an article about it, and they're pretty left-wing, and I didn't really want to give them some play. But I finally it finally dawned on me. I was talking to one of my business partners. He said, well, what about John Solomon's uh, – Outfitjustinnews.com. I'm like, oh, why didn't I think of that? So I went to justinnews.com, and sure enough, 6.30 p.m. on Thursday, he dropped the article, Trump scores another win in Mar-a-Lago case, subtitle, Special Master Raymond Deary had sought to require that Trump substantiate his claims that the FBI planted evidence during the raid. Here's what he says. Former President Donald Trump on Thursday scored a major win in the ongoing court battle pertaining to the FBI's seizure of documents from his Mar-a-Lago estate in early August. U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon, in her ruling Thursday, wrote, There shall be no separate requirement on plaintiffs, pardon me, on plaintiff at this stage prior to the review of any of the seized materials to lodge ex ante final objections to the accuracy of defendant's inventory, its descriptions, or its contents. In other words, ex ante, you can't 
force something before it's happened. You can't get Trump, you can't make him sign off on something when he hasn't seen what's going on yet. So then John Solomon kind of explains what's going on here. Special Master Raymond Deary, whom Judge Cannon appointed to independently review the documents the Bureau seized, had sought to require that Trump substantiate his claims that the FBI planted evidence during the raid. Trump repeatedly suggested such on social media posts, but his lawyers stopped short of making the claims in formal court filings that they thought that the FBI had actually planted stuff. Trump's legal team submitted Judge Deary as a candidate to fill the role of special master. The DOJ agreed that he was a qualified choice, and Judge Cannon appointed him earlier last month. Moreover, Judge Cannon extended the timeline for the special master review. The Department of Justice has until October 14th to fully make available to Trump all the relevant documents. Trump then has three weeks to present special master Raymond Deary and the DOJ with a comprehensive review of those materials and make any claims to attorney, client, or executive privilege or to claim them as personal or presidential records under the Presidential Records Act. Trump must make each claim on a document-by-document basis, according to Judge Cannon. The DOJ will then have 10 days to dispute any of Trump's claims. Judge Cannon further delayed the final deadline for the special master to complete his review to December 16, 2022. She wrote, this modest enlargement is necessary to permit adequate time for the special master's review and recommendations given the circumstances as they have evolved since entry of the appointment order. All right, now, over at LegalInsurrection.com, William Jacobson, the founder of Legal Insurrection, he pointed out that The usual suspects, the liberal legal folks over on social media, over on Twitter, just totally freaked out, okay? Good example, Katie Fong, who does legal analysis on MSNBC, she said, Judge Cannon rules that Trump does not have to submit affidavit or declaration as to items allegedly planted by the FBI before he has reviewed the seized documents from Mar-a-Lago, to which Steve Vladek, who does legal analysis on CNN, said, Everyone has a point past which it's hard to believe that a particular person is acting in good faith if we weren't there already for Judge Cannon, dot, 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 William Jacobson, legal insurrection, responded, so stupid to argue judge acting in bad faith because she is giving a litigant opportunity to review the actual documents before certifying inventory is complete and raising any objections. If it wasn't Trump, all the resistance law professors and lawyers would say that's reasonable. 
See, they don't want the constitutional rights applying to Donald Trump. Anybody else, they'd be like, well, yeah, sure. That's, you know, that's reasonable. That's standard. Not a problem. Okay? Now, another freak out is this guy, Scott Greenfield. Criminal defense attorney and blogger over simple justice, he said, Raymond Deary is not just Mar-a-Lago's special master, but a highly respected senior United States district judge. That Judge Eileen Cannon undermined his directions displays a stunning lack of humility and collegiality. Well, that was too much for the great Harmeet K. Dillon, who knows more about the law and the tip of her little finger than Scott Greenfield helps, hopes to ever know. She responded, No, Judge Cannon was clear in her initial order. She would have the last word, and Judge Deary accepted these terms. Did you even read those initial orders? It's her case, not his. So that's where things stand and that was a pretty major development Thursday afternoon, and most of most of conservative media has ignored it. I couldn't find anything on it. Daily Caller, Daily Wire, The Blaze. Well, The Blaze is a search engine. didn't even work, so they might have had something, but I couldn't find it. American Greatness. Um, I just I looked all over the place. But John Solomon had it at justthenews.com. Hmm? No, the conservative treehouse didn't even have it. Gateway Pundit had it, but they were quoting ABC News. So anyway, I wanted to get, you know, a conservative news outlet that actually was had their own take on it. All right. Now, if you've been listening to Doc Washburn's show for any length of time at all, you may realize that people like Matt Walsh, Billboard Chris, also Christopher F. Rufo, have been out there publicizing the hospitals and medical centers that are doing gender surgery on children. What they call top surgery, double mastectomies on healthy teenage girls who think that maybe they're boys. Or adults are trying to talk them into the idea that getting the surgery will help deal with the depression that you already have or whatever. And some of them do bottom surgeries. They, they actually mutilate the genitalia of these little boys and little girls. 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. It's horrible. It's satanic. It's demonic. Well, these hospitals don't appreciate uh, being exposed for what they're doing. Now, Christopher Rufo breaks the news. The American Medical Association is asking Big Tech and the Department of Justice to censor, deplatform, investigate, and prosecute journalists who question the orthodoxy of radical gender surgeries 
for minors, arguing that public criticism is disinformation. And he has a screenshot of a letter here signed by the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, and Children's Hospital Association. This is horrendous. And Monday, October 3rd, they wrote the letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland. Kind of reminds me when the School Board Association wrote to Merrick Garland warning parents who had the gall to express their disagreements with school boards at school board meetings to be investigated by the FBI. You remember that one? Here's what it says. Dear Attorney General Garland, on behalf of the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, and the Children's Hospital Association, collectively representing more than 270,000 physicians and more than 220 children's hospitals across the country, we write to urge you to investigate the organizations, individuals, and entities coordinating, provoking, and carrying out bomb threats and threats of personal violence against children's hospitals and physicians across the U.S. Now, do you believe that conservatives are actually doing bomb threats against these hospitals? Because I don't. Now, federal agents masquerading as conservatives, perhaps they are. I don't know. It's possible, I guess. Okay. The letter continues from Boston to Akron to Nashville to Seattle. Children's hospitals, academic health systems, and physicians are being targeted and threatened for providing evidence-based health care. What a bald Faced lie. There's no evidence that committing the crime of a double mastectomy on a healthy 15-year-old girl is a good thing. It's mutilation. It's child abuse. Anyway, the letter continues. These attacks have not only made it difficult and dangerous for institutions and practices, To provide this care, they have also disrupted many other services to families seeking care. In one hospital, a new mother was prevented from being with her preteen infant, pardon me, with her preterm infant, because the hospital's neonatal intensive care unit was on lockdown due to a bomb threat. Really, which hospital was that that got a bomb threat? I'd love to know. And by the way, what about adults who were prevented from being with their dying parents because of the China virus? You don't have a problem with that, do you? I didn't think so. But I digress. The letter continues. Children's hospitals across the nation have substantially increased security in addition to working with local and federal law enforcement both on their main hospital campuses as well as across their ambulatory delivery sites in order to ensure the safety of patients, families, and medical staff who work there. 
In addition, some providers have needed 24-7 security. Children's hospitals and their medical staffs continue to face increased threats via social media, including to their personal accounts. Coupled with harassing emails, phone calls, and protesters at healthcare sites, there's elevated and justifiable fear among families, patients, and staff. Oh, my goodness, protesters. Oh, we can't have that pesky First Amendment around here. Oh, no. But I digress. They continue. These coordinated attacks threaten federally protected rights to health care for patients and their families. The attacks are rooted in an intentional campaign of disinformation where a few high-profile users on social media share false and misleading information targeting individual physicians and hospitals, resulting in a rapid escalation of threats, harassment, and disruption of care across multiple jurisdictions. Our organizations have called on technology companies to do more to prevent this practice on digital platforms, and we now urge your office to take swift action to investigate and prosecute all organizations, individuals, and entities responsible. False and misleading, huh? No, 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 you're lying. You're lying. Presenting your own videos, what you brag about doing to children, that's not false and misleading. But I digress. The article continues. I mean, the letter. Attacks against healthcare institutions that threaten violence, intimidation, and physical harm have left hospitals, staff, and their communities shaken. Providers of evidence based gender affirming healthcare, what a bald faced lie, a damnable lie. You want to go to hell? This is a good way to do it. And their colleagues are facing increased stress and fear on top of the conditions they have faced while working on the front lines of a global pandemic for nearly three years. Families seeking care at these institutions. Oh, looks like they uh, misspelled mutilation. As well as our those providing their care, I guess that's a typo, fear for their personal safety in the wake of of these attacks. Our organizations are dedicated to the health and well-being of all children and adolescents. Couldn't be further from the truth. We are committed to the full spectrum of patient care from prevention to critical care. We stand with the physicians, nurses, mental health specialists, and other health care professionals providing evidence-based health care. Oh, my. Yeah, the kind of evidence-based healthcare, I guess, Dr. Mengele did with the twins there and his experiments in Germany, right? Including gender-affirming care, which is, of course, an oxymoron because it is a lie to separate gender from sex to children and adolescents. Oh, not just the adolescents, but the kids, the prepubescent kids. They're going to carve them up too, huh? On behalf of the patients and families we serve and the physicians we represent, we thank you for your attention to our requests. Sincerely, American Academy of Pediatrics, American Medical Association, and Children's Hospital Association. Now, let's see what Christopher Rufo says about this. And, and, and by the way, 
Chris Arufo is the guy that first got the word out about critical race theory, just so you know. And now he's exposing the transgender um, madness. He says, breaking, the American Medical Association is asking big tech and the Department of Justice to censor, deplatform, investigate, and prosecute journalists who question the orthodoxy radical gender surgeries for minors, arguing that public criticism is disinformation. He says, this is now the left's playbook. Last year, the National School Board Association, Department of Justice, and FBI worked together to label parents who opposed critical race theory domestic terrorists. They want to stifle dissent suppress speech, and criminalize opposition. We need to go to our local fascism expert, Jason Stanley, to let us know if a collaboration between the state security services and the largest corporations to silence political political opposition is actually fascism, or if that's moot because... The current president isn't orange-colored. The morality of this situation is blindingly clear. First, threatening hospitals is wrong. Second, censoring journalists is wrong. Third, criminalizing political opposition is wrong. And fourth, surgically removing a child's genitalia is wrong. He says, if gender-affirming care is so good, the activists and doctors who promote it and profit from it, should defend their practices in the realm of public opinion. In a democracy, everyone gets to weigh in on important issues, not just regime-approved apparatchiks. Children's hospitals say we give children puberty blockers, hormones, and gender surgeries. Conservatives say they give children puberty blockers, hormones, and gender surgeries. The regime says that's harmful disinformation and should be censored, criminalized, and suppressed. So the great Andrew Sullivan, independent journalist, followed by hundreds of thousands of people out there on social media, says, evidence-based gender-affirming care equals experimental, off-label, sex-change drugs not FDA-approved for children with natural puberty. And Christopher Rufo responds, if you don't let us surgically remove these children's genitals, you're a domestic terrorist. Because that's what they're saying. Chloe Cole had a double mastectomy. She's 15, and a few months later, greatly regretted it, and it's 17 years old, is trying to get, trying to raise the alarm. She says, gender affirming care is so great that we need to violate First Amendment rights to convince people of how great it is. I never thought it would come to it. I never thought it would come to this. The AMA wanted people put in jail for this. Billboard Chris. He responds asking the Justice Department to please investigate Boston Children's Hospital for spreading dangerous disinformation about Boston Children's Hospital. And he's got, he's got the videos. Now, there's another hospital that's doing this. And when I tell you what it is, it might shock you. It might shock you. 
And that is coming up as the Doc Washburn Show continues. Thank you so much to our advertisers, our friends, for making it possible for us to do what we do here week in and week out as we approach our first anniversary. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website to put you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions and then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live, redriveryourway.com. You will be glad you did. All right, let me ask you this. Does your financial advisor take the time to listen and get to know you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situations change? When you work with Jonathan Presswood, he focuses on what's important to you. He uses an established process to help you achieve your unique goals, whether that's preparing for retirement, making your money last in retirement, planning your estate or inheritance, preparing for the unexpected, or anything else. Jonathan Presswood can help. Now, what should you do if you leave a job and have a 401k or other retirement plan? Or if you're getting close to retirement or already in retirement? Call my friend, Jonathan Presswood, today. He'll help you create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And he'll partner together with you to help your strategy stay on track no matter what life throws at you. Listen, we can all dream of having a perfect retirement, but how many of us will actually experience it? No matter where you are today, Jonathan Presswood is offering a free retirement analysis to figure out where you'd like to be and what it will take to get you there, and there's no obligation. Contact Jonathan Presswood, a financial advisor with Edward Jones Investments, today at 501-303-4844. Again, that's 501-303-4844. Don't wait. Call Jonathan Presswood today at 501-303-4844. Now, if you're like me, you can't remember phone numbers, go to our website, DocWashburnShow.com, just click on the link to Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones. Edward Jones, making sense of investing. Member SIPC. Thank you again to our advertisers, our friends, Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones, financial advisors, and Mitch Ward, proprietor of RedRiverYourWay.com. Okay, libs of TikTok is a Twitter profile that... um, kind of specializes 
in putting videos that libs do on TikTok out there. But every once in a while, they uh, actually do some news stories. And here's one. Barbara Bush, Children's Hospital in the state of Maine, has a gender clinic which offers puberty blockers to kids, cross-sex hormones, guides for boys on tucking, and guides for girls on chest binding. They also promote their services in helping young children fully transition. So here is a report on Barbara Bush, Children's Hospital in Maine, from WMTW Channel 8 Television in Portland, Maine. I am not making this up. Like so many nine-year-old girls, Lucy Tid loves to dance. I love that I'm very flexible and that I can do a bunch of stunts and stuff in my dancing and that I'm very athletic. She also loves to play the keyboard. But Lucy's life wasn't always this easygoing. That's because Lucy wasn't always Lucy. When my child Benjamin was born back in 2006, uh, he was born um, Benjamin Thomas Tidd. Bridget says Benjamin was headstrong from birth and struggled with behavioral issues. But she says there were other things that were different about Benjamin. We noticed at a young age there was this tendency to want to um, dress up and want to do what I do every day. And he used to love, if I had high heels on, he would love to hear the sound. He said, I love that sound, Mama. I love that sound. At first, the Tibbs thought it was just a stage he was going through. That was until a moment that altered their lives for good. He said to me, Mom, I wish I could die and God could bring me back as a girl. And that was the moment we said, we would rather have our child be with a different name and identify as who she wants to be than a child that isn't here at all. Uh, but he's a boy. He's not a she. And so you're lying to him, and you're lying to yourselves. Now, what I don't understand is they say he's nine years old, but he's born in 2006. So is this a 16-year-old identifying as a nine-year-old? Or is this a TV report from six years ago and they were doing it back then? Sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. That's when the Tibbs sought help at the gender clinic at the Barbara Bush Children's Hospital. Dr. Gerald Olshan, a pediatric endocrinologist, is the medical director. You know, about one in four um, will attempt suicide. About half will consider suicide during adolescence. And so our big goal and what got me interested is how do we help this population do better in the long run? This isn't a choice in most individuals. This is probably biologically programmed. Maybe make some suggestions. Dr. Aaron Belfort. A ch- Wait. Probably? Biologically programmed? Probably? But you don't know that, do you? Oh, boy, do I have something for you. Anyway, sorry, let me back it up. This is probably biologically programmed. Maybe make some suggestions. Dr. Aaron Belfort, a child and adolescent psychiatrist, agrees. 
these kids aren't just kind of wishing to be the other gender. I mean, they really come into my office and say, no, I am. <laughs> I am not a girl or I am not a boy. This doesn't feel right. And then I'll do elephant yep. Yep. And she says it's crucial for transgender children to get the proper support from their families and the medical community. So we know that these kids have much higher rates of depression, of anxiety, um, problems with substance abuse. Um, and much of that we understand to be related to the stigma. While the kids say stigma was not much of an issue for them, their son Benjamin had many more struggles before transitioning to loose. This is outrageous. Barbara Bush Children's Hospital doing this. Libs of TikTok continues. Barbara Bush Children's Hospital Gender Clinic provides boy with a detailed guide on tucking. I'm not going to tell you what this is. But you can look it up. Just go to Libs of TikTok on Twitter. It's horrifying. Barbara Bush Children's Hospital's gender clinic provides a guide for girls on chest binding so they can appear more masculine. Barbara Bush Children's Hospital's gender clinic boasts that they provide puberty blockers and gender-affirming hormone therapy to children. An endocrinologist at Barbara Bush Children's Hospital says kids as young as two years old can be transgender, and it is not a choice. That's that Dr. Gerald Olshan you just heard from. It's amazing what people do for money, isn't it? Now, have you heard one word from George W. Bush Jeb Bush, Neil Bush, any of them. Any of them. Repudiating this? No, I don't think you have, and I don't think you will. I guess it doesn't bother them. Horrifying. Okay, I uh, got something I want to share with you. If you have friends or loved ones that are taking this seriously, or friends or loved ones for that matter, who still think maybe the vaccine for COVID is a good thing, who still think maybe wearing masks a good thing, who still think maybe they need to avoid you because you're not vaccinated or you're not wearing a mask. Oh, boy, do I have the perfect article for you. And that is coming up next as the Doc Washburn Show continues. Hey, I'd like to help you with some health issues. You have migraines? Neck pain? Back pain, vertigo, acid reflux, eczema, problems with your blood sugar, maybe even hay fever. Okay, let's do a little test. Look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Are you tilting your head to the left or the right instead of sitting up or standing up straight? If the answer to any of these questions is yes... You probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines, neck pain, and hay fever. Let me explain to you how it works because it's the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system reproductive system, circulatory system, even digestive system, and yes, it can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain, acid reflux, eczema, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar, 
do yourself a favor. If you're in Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted, because you probably do. If you're outside central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on Find a Doctor Near You. And I sure hope you can. Thank you again to our advertisers, Dr. J.R. Crabtree, his wife, Dr. Tanya Crabtree. They are our advertisers, our doctors, and our friends. We really appreciate you guys making it possible for us to do what we do here, week in and week out, as we approach our first anniversary coming up October 12th. All right, let me share this with you. Um, Ann Bauer. Ann Bauer. Is the author of four books, including the novels A Wild Ride Up the Cupboards and The Forever Marriage. Her essays have been published in the New York Times, Salon, Slate, and The Sun. And she has an article that came out almost a year ago over at tabletmag.com. And I figured it was probably about time to share it with you. It's called I Have Been Through This Before. And she says, in April 1939, as a result of a backdoor bribe, a 35-year-old lumber baron named Bruno Bettelheim was released from the Buchenwald concentration camp on the condition that he leave Germany and never return. In addition to running his family's sawmills, Bettelheim had earned a degree in art history And like many Austrians of his time, he dabbled in psychoanalysis and read a bit of Freud. His wife had once cared for an emotionally disturbed child in their home. When he arrived as a refugee in the U.S., he used these random details to remake himself as an expert in human behavior. A small man with a striking Viennese accent and manner He believed he had valuable psychological insights from the 11 months he had spent inside Dachau and Buchenwald. Back in 38, when Bettelheim was imprisoned, these were primarily work camps where prisoners were divided, stripped of their possessions, then beaten and herded like animals by the guards. Bettelheim noted that the men most damaged by alienation and violence, the ones who gave up hope, had similar effect. They avoided eye contact, they rocked and they muttered, and they gazed at distant objects. He felt he had witnessed what it takes to break a person's mind. Bettelheim's first job in the United States was as research assistant at the University of Chicago studying high school art curricula. He divorced his wife, who had also immigrated, and taught briefly. In 1943, he published a paper entitled Individual and Mass Behavior in Extreme Situations, claiming to have studied more than 1,500 concentration camp prisoners. Legendary general and future president Dwight D. Eisenhower praised his work. So, overnight, Bettelheim became a doctor and a star. On the strength of that paper, his false claim to have worked with Sigmund Freud 
and his status as an intellectual and refugee from Hitler's Germany, Bettelheim was made a full professor of psychology and director of the Sonia Shankman Orthogenic School for Emotionally Disturbed Children at the University of Chicago in 1944. Once established at the school, he won a grant from the Ford Foundation to start a program specifically for autistic children. Parents from all over the country sought his help for their children who were mute, withdrawn, unable to follow directions, prone to stimming, which means gazing at an object or blinking rapidly into light, self-harming or failing to toilet train. In the mid-50s, Bettelheim developed a new theory of autism based on his 1943 paper and the passing remark of a researcher named Leo Kanner who said autistic children never defrost. And he blamed it on what he called the refrigerator mother. Bettelheim said bad parenting, bad parenting, like imprisonment in a Nazi work camp, was an extreme situation. He characterized the mothers of children in his program as cold, distant, abusive, and uncaring, like domestic SS guards. Though no studies were done to back up this hypothesis, his theory that rejecting mothers caused autism became the accepted science of the time. In his nineteen sixty seven book The Empty in his nineteen sixty seven book The Empty Fortress, Bettelheim wrote Infants, if totally deserted, by humans before they have developed enough to shift for themselves will die. And if their physical care is enough for survival, but they are deserted emotionally or are pushed beyond their capacity to cope, they will become autistic. Dr. Bettelheim enjoyed decades as a media darling, appearing on television. He was a regular on the Dick Cavett show. Late night show used to come on ABC TV in the late 60s and early 70s trying to compete with uh, Johnny Carson. Dr. Bettelheim also served as top expert for newspapers such as the New York Times and the Washington Post, which credited him with originating many of the techniques and principles of modern child psychiatry. Woody Allen gave the pop psychiatrist a cameo as himself in the film Zelig. Commonwealth Magazine published an article titled The Holy Work of Bruno Bettelheim. He wrote a series of world-famous best-selling books. Now, the refrigerator mother theory of autism became gospel, not just among psychiatrists, but in the larger culture and our mindset at large as Americans. It made sense to people, and it was easy to grasp. Better yet, it turned a mysterious and heartbreaking condition into a simple problem of who was to blame. People rallied behind the idea that cold mothers caused autism because it gave them comfort. Mothers whose children developed normally knew it was because they were good. Fathers and other relatives of autistic children were off the hook. Now, even desperate 
so-called bad mothers embraced the idea, believing that, that if they could fix themselves, their children would be cured. Finally, an answer. They just needed to sign up for intense psychotherapy and send their autistic children to live with other families or in residential programs. Some mothers were advised to rehome their healthy children as well, lest their refrigerator qualities leak over and spoil another young mind. And many families complied. Now, occasionally families would reject the diagnosis and their children would be taken by force. So reports would be made, psychiatric teams would be mobilized, they would show up at the homes of autistic children, packing their bags and removing them while guards held off the screaming, protesting mothers who had been deemed unsuitable. Bettelheim called this process parentectomy, a sad but necessary practice that would help autistic kids be cured. Many such children were taken to the orthogenic school at the University of Chicago that he ran, where they stayed for up to a dozen years each. Now, it wasn't until 1990, after Bruno Bettelheim's death by suicide at age 86, oh yeah, that residents and staff from the school began talking about Bettelheim's rages, his name-calling, his constant lying, and his abuse. A former counselor at the school who went by the initials WB, wrote a letter to the Chicago Reader magazine in July 1990 in which he said, I would characterize the atmosphere at the orthogenic school at that time as the beginning of a cult where Dr. Bettelheim is the cult leader. Well, by that point, almost 50 years of damage had been done during which any clinician who came up with a different diagnosis or questioned Bettelheim's practices suffered immediate and devastating professional consequences. Psychiatrist Richard Kaufman told the Chicago Tribune, in the orthogenic school, Bettelheim's mind supplanted your own mind. Now, the author here, Ann Bauer, said, I was 23 when Bruno Bettelheim, a man I'd never heard of, took his own life. Following year, 1991, my three-and-a-half-year-old son, Andrew, all of a sudden lost language. One day he could talk. The next day he was yodeling in a strange, high-pitched voice, flicking the lights on and off and staring for hours as he spun a single wheel on a toy car. She says, My then-husband and I were too young and poor to have a child, much less two children. She says, Our one-year-old had respiratory problems and asthma, which consumed time and money. We were on the edge, barely able to pay our bills and buy macaroni and cheese. It was just dawning on me that I had married a dreamy, chaotic guy who drank when he was troubled and couldn't hold down a job. That's what county social workers saw when they were called to assess Andrew following his meltdown at our public library. A tiny house, a fraying marriage, two depleted parents, and cheap clothes. It was winter on the Iron Range, where advances in psychology took some time to travel. The experts, a stoic North Country man and woman team, decided we were the cause. They questioned us separately and casually brought up the idea of temporary foster care. We protested and were told we could keep the boys, but only if we submitted to frequent visits and attended parenting classes twice weekly, which we gladly did. While we were being taught 
how to impose consequences and establish routine, Andrew and his brother were taken to a childcare room where teachers helped them sing, play, and socialize. At first, Andrew seemed to improve, brightening and even talking a little bit, but then he regressed again, a pattern we'd see repeat on a loop for the rest of his life. When an older relative came to visit us in the spring, she took one look at my four-year-old sitting in the corner, staring at his hand, her face tense with fury. She said to me, You've ruined that beautiful child. You and your careless life ruined him. Aren't you ashamed? We eventually moved to Minneapolis, where treatments were supposedly more advanced. At five, Andrew was diagnosed with autism and enrolled in a program that involved rocking boards, chewy toys, and roughing his skin with surgical brushes three times a day. We blamed ourselves for our son's problems, and most of the new theories did too. His autism was because we'd had him vaccinated, or because we had fed him wheat or dairy or corn, because we hadn't employed a team of workers to have constant floor time with him, the so-called sunrise cure or apply behavioral techniques according to the LOVAS method, beloved not only by late 90s autism parents, but also by conversion therapy folks. Each new wave was certain. The approaches to autism that had come before were barbaric and uninformed, but this most recent breakthrough was the one clear truth. Science had spoken over and over again for a dozen years. We were heartbroken Each time a treatment failed and guilty because without fail, someone would insist we hadn't tried hard enough. Oh, sure, we'd gone gluten-free, but had we cleansed with hyperbaric oxygen? Behavioral training worked, but only if you did it 18 hours a day. Why hadn't we taken a second mortgage out on our home and flown to the Catskills for a workshop at the Sunrise Institute? Just shy of his 36th birthday, my then-husband gave in and began drinking in earnest. He lost his job and grew dark and silent. One day he apologized, hugged us all, got in his truck, and drove away. Now single, I rode the waves of hope and despair alone. There were periods of clarity when I was sure Andrew was breaking through. Adolescence was oddly hopeful. He spoke haltingly, but started playing tournament chess and riding a bike. It seemed hormones might bring him out of childhood autism, as they do miraculously in a tiny number of boys. Years passed, during which my sons grew closer and more alike. Once someone asked me, which is the autistic one? But along with better engagement, social skills, and speech, Andrew had chronic anxiety. When he started high school, a doctor friend at the university where I was teaching suggested that perhaps Andrew needed to be seen. Around the same time, there was a surge in ads for antidepressants on TV. Psychiatrists quit asking questions and plumbing the unconscious mind, becoming like tea leaf readers in white coats who studied blood test results but never looked their patients in the eyes. I took my son to such a person who prescribed Lexapro. This was the moment Bettelheim's work was entirely spurned by a new group of experts who neatly whipsawed the other direction. They changed positions, but held on to the religiosity. Nature was in, nurture was out. Brain chemistry became the only thing that mattered. 
Everything we had done during Andrew's childhood, talk therapy, sensory integration, cross-patterning, behavior training, biofeedback, they rejected all of it lock, stock, and barrel as quackery. Andrew responded oddly to Lexapro as he did to so many things, becoming obsessive and manic, wandering all night. The boy's father had resurfaced with a new wife who happened to work for a pharmaceutical company. She says, I too was recently remarried. The four of us met to discuss the situation. I was relieved to have help for the first time in years, but soon we were at odds. My husband John and I wanted to take Andrew off the Lexapro, but my ex and his wife insisted he really needed something stronger. When we finally saw the autism specialist we had spent six months waitlisted for, he was entirely on their side. The doctor, looming over us just like those North Country social workers had, said, Your son is suffering from a neurological disease, and I won't permit you to withhold medication that will help him. I would call that abuse. He put Andrew on Abilify, an atypical antipsychotic that ran commercials during the news on TV. John and I asked for a trial of something milder or more tested, but the psychiatrist insisted older therapies were inferior and would not work. Weeks later, my son turned 18, and I lost the power to control his medical decisions. I watched as the doctor and my ex-husband, both large imposing men, insisted he take the drug. It's possible Andrew developed psychosis at exactly the same time he began taking psychiatric drugs. That my ex and the doctor were right, and I was wrong. It's also possible that his brain was fragile and the drugs were loaded into it. Over time, his doctor added Risperdal and a little Depakote. So they melted his circuitry, causing decompensation. But each time I raised the question, I was lectured. Andrew should have been medicated earlier. I've been negligent. The doctors were playing catch-up. It would take at least three months to see benefits, possibly six months. I must not think of taking him off because withdrawal was dangerous. Two doctors threatened to report me for mistreatment of a vulnerable adult if I tried. I wrote an article for a local magazine telling our story and questioning the widespread use of antipsychotics. A University of Minnesota psychiatrist, director of autism services, submitted a scathing rebuttal calling me an anti-science nut. Meanwhile, Andrew went from a shy, smart, autistic teenager to a stuporous man who gained 100 pounds and erupted in rage. My ex and his wife faded away around the time a county worker told a judge our son was out of control and the state of Minnesota mandated electroshock. This was 2011, and electroshock was a common practice back then. John and I sued and ended up with a court-appointed guardian who was granted all powers of control over Andrew's life and later was indicted himself for doping his clients and stealing from them. Again, we went to court, and this time we won. In 2014, John became Andrew's legal guardian and began the process of detoxing him from the most dangerous medications. For two years, we lived quietly, Andrew in an apartment complex for adults with autism. Us in a small house, we planned to will to him and his brother who had asked to be successor guardian when we passed. Every Sunday, we had dinner together and took a walk. Andrew had grown into himself, resigned and weary. No longer angry, he lived in easy silence and aged precipitously, appearing to be decades older. When we went out, he and I, 
people assumed he was my husband, this tall, grave, balding man. On a dazzling Friday morning in November 2016, Andrew was found dead on the floor of his living room. John got the call and took me to a, a park near our house, awash with crisp red and orange leaves, to tell me the news. Fall has filled me with dread ever since. She says, My son was 28 years old when he died. An autopsy was performed, but no official cause of death was found. Traditional methods of suicide were ruled out. Yet he had told me at our last dinner that there was no happiness for him in this world. Seeming clearer of mind than he had in years, he had wiped his phone and computer and erased his music from Spotify. When we cleaned out his apartment, there was a pile of foil-wrapped pharmaceuticals in the back of a drawer. But the coroner's report showed low to normal levels of only two drugs in his blood, neither withdrawal nor overdose. My personal explanation is that he was tired of being controlled by the fickle czars of autism, and he was just done. The time between late 2016 and 2019 is mostly lost to me. Grief, it turns out, doesn't feel like sadness. It's more like terror, being chased through oily blackness. My husband, younger son, and I isolated. We drank. We drove, looking for Andrew. He had loved the mountains, South Dakota, Colorado, Oregon. We swore we felt him in the trees. We had started to function again slowly by late 2019. In January 2020, we traveled to Bellevue, Washington for a conference where John was speaking. I fell ill soon after with a fever and breathless cough I couldn't shake for six weeks. This friend of ours, a corporate lawyer with business in China, raised an eyebrow and told us a pandemic was coming. All around there was tension, something uncontrolled and wicked in the air. John is an Internet security expert with a background in mathematics. He'll often talk about the shape of a problem. This is its outline, its gestalt. He envisions it like dots on a chart or waves on a graph. I see holographic images, the shape of an ambitious refugee, white coats and flim-flam men glimmering under the figures we see today. In March, April, and May of 2020, familiar shapes began to emerge. Suddenly there emerged a cadre of pandemic experts who recommended, then quickly required, extreme and unprecedented things. Things like people shouldn't see their parents, visit friends, hold funerals, or hug. They said we could never shake hands again. Wearing masks was useless. Oh, no, no, we must mask both indoors and out. There are hotlines set up in many cities, including mine, for citizens to report their neighbors who did not comply. Police are sent to break up a Jewish funeral in New York City. Day after day, media rained down information about who was to blame. Millennials, spring breakers, southerners, motorcyclists, scientists who proposed Different theories were muffled, derided, sidelined. They were deemed dangerous, their ideas misinformation. The question was sacrilege. I had lived through all of this before. 
In the last days of May 2020, a man died in police custody in my city of Minneapolis, setting off worldwide mass protests. But these gatherings were proclaimed to be different, sanctified. A service was held indoors, packed with people, including a U.S. senator with no mask on, and our Minnesota governor, who had pledged to send the National Guard to break up anyone else's funeral. They sang, they gripped hands. This, too, was blessed by those in charge. Just as they had all the years of my son's life, recommendations changed at a furious pace. Echoed by not only public health officials, but their inner circle of a tech giant, a nutritionist, a sociologist, a healthcare entrepreneur, which now enjoyed the support of both the U.S. government and the monopoly tech platforms that control what we are allowed to see and read. The experts rocketed beyond the reach of scientific gravity into an evidence-free atmosphere where every passing theory became both law and truth. The year of COVID continued with a drumbeat of warnings nationwide. Sanitize your mail with bleach and a UV light. Don't wear a mask. But then that became, you must wear a mask. Buy a pulse oximeter. Stock up on Tylenol, vitamin D, Pepsid. Form a pod. Get an air filter. Whisper so you don't spit. Stand six feet from others. No, no, ten feet. Wear gloves. Put on goggles because the virus can get in through your eyes. Don't pet the dog. Keep your teenager in the garage. Isolate a sick toddler in your basement with a bell. Wear two masks. Stay out of restaurants, nail salons, gyms, open the windows, close the schools. Finally, the vaccines came, and they seemed at first to be a miracle. But still, there were certain things you weren't allowed to discuss, like side effects, transmissibility, and natural immunity. The shots were immaculate and all-powerful. Then suddenly, they were not. Vaccinations were undone by the unvaccinated. They couldn't save the faithful because of the sinful. And the drug alone wasn't enough. True believers wore a mask as well, and those who did not were causing the cure to fail. Whatever the experts said on television became reality, became science. Meanwhile, people died and died and died, and just as the ongoing tragedy of autism of a child was somehow the mother's fault over and over again, doctors and officials blamed their audience of 3 billion people for the disease. The more the cures failed, the greater the fault of the public. The flaw was never in the remedy, but in those who had failed to behave and thereby brought the plague upon themselves. After schools were closed and our city shut down in March of 2020, she says, I lay awake nights imagining all the children like my son who were mute, sensitive, bound to routine, friendless, in desperate need of services, and incapable of learning on Zoom. The adults with already isolating disabilities whose programs and activities supported jobs and social work visits were canceled. The ones who were returned with COVID to their group homes and left to die, occasionally I would panic, my heart pounding, and my husband 
would awaken to comfort me. More than once, he actually said the words, It's okay. You can sleep. Andrew is gone. But I was haunted, driven, obsessed the way my child with autism had been. It was so clear to me the politicians and public health were flailing. They were doing harm with every new order and unprecedented decree. I saw the shape of that army of autism experts. I questioned everything, school closures, lockdowns, masks, talking compulsively about the inevitable consequences, the ways we were breaking people. Fully half of my friends, people who sat with me in the hours after my son's death, quit speaking to me in the year 2020. My editors, clients, and work colleagues simply disappeared. Of the friends who remain, most are sympathetic, but also loyal to the COVID narrative and therefore frustrated by my stance. They have suggested that I don't trust today's experts because I'm so broken by my past, and I cannot swear this isn't true. But are today's experts provably better than past experts? Why should that be? Perhaps I learned from experiences that other people were fortunate enough not to have until now. In the end, what I believe really doesn't matter, history will out, 10 or 15 or 25 years from now, there will be a reckoning, deep research, a spate of biographies and memoirs from the people who spent 2020 and 2021 under the sway of gurus. News media that trumpeted their wisdom and methods will issue brisk, researched, documentary-style reports. People will swarm out of the shadows to claim they didn't really believe the experts embodied science and were secretly resisting all along. Even those who preached their gospel and strong-armed the public's obedience will insist they actually didn't. Because controversy sells, stories may get lurid and over-the-top, that whipsaw effect. A few of the people who worked with Bettelheim, such as Dr. Jacqueline Sanders, who was his second-in-command and successor as director of the orthogenic school, felt the pendulum swung too far upon his death. Sanders said he was never the oracle media made him out to be, but he began his career with a true desire to help. Then came the media spotlight. The book deals, celebrity status, and wealth What started as medicine became corrupt, bombastic certainty, a willingness to destroy people if it meant never having to admit he was wrong. There were no studies to support Bettelheim's work. That's what Joan Beck reminded readers in her 1997 Chicago Tribune article setting the record straight about a fallen guru. There were no studies to support his work, so he required the unquestioning devout allegiance of his team to constantly remake reality so that it conformed to his recommendations. After Bettelheim's death, when allegations of abuse started streaming in from both workers and residents, a journalist and former literary editor at The Nation, Richard Pollack, began working on a memoir about his brother who had been a resident at the orthogenic school. Among the things Pollack uncovered in his research for the book 
the creation of Dr. B, a biography of Bruno Bettelheim, was this. Under Bettelheim's directorship, researchers routinely mislabeled children as autistic or retarded who were not in order to raise their cure rate and increase funding and grants. In other words, they couldn't cure the actual retarded or autistic children, so they said that some normal children were, and look how they've improved. In his 2007 book, Madness on the Couch, Blaming the Victim in the Heyday of Psychoanalysis, science writer Edward Dolnick reported that papers show Bettelheim knew his methods could not cure autism as early as 1964. But he continued publishing, pushing the refrigerator mother theory and removing children from their families for decades, admitting only in his final manuscript, published posthumously, that, quote, nobody knows how to treat these children, unquote. Oh, but he sure kept taking the money. Since Bettelheim took his own life in 1990, The orthogenic school has undergone major changes. Their own family handbook makes glancing reference to Bettelheim's highly controversial theories and credits him briefly for drawing attention to the problem of autism. In 2014, the school moved from the somber brick buildings where it had been housed for almost 100 years to a sunny campus in Chicago's Woodlawn neighborhood. In 2021, they announced they're closing their residential program for good. At some point, I cannot say when, because there were years that went by like dark water, I went to Chicago and visited the site of the old orthogenic school where Bruno Bettelheim once ruled. A psychiatry fellow I contacted showed me around talking gravely about the bizarrely ignorant methods that had once dominated his field. He showed me the rooms where the children lived, far from their parents, and the courtyard where in Bettelheim's era there had been a statue in the shape of a mother that he had encouraged his young male students to urinate on the statue. I don't know what I thought I'd find there. Maybe I was looking for the answer to how Terribly and repeatedly, we as people can get our responses to nature so wrong. The courtyard was empty, brilliantly sunny. The brick buildings were old and graceful like hallowed monuments to science. I had to remind myself there were decades of abuse, psychological terror, and forced separation from parents within the walls of this place. And for all those years... Staff watched and participated without a single one of them speaking out. That is Ann Bauer over at tabletmag.com. Articles entitled, I Have Been Through This Before, and she surely has. So what are we to do with this knowledge? She says, look, it's the same thing with COVID that it was with the way they treated the uh, children with autism. They keep on changing. They keep on contradicting. I'm reminded of Dr. Cam Patterson. He is uh, the director of the University of Arkansas Medical System. UAMS planted a fake news story with the TV news operations in Little Rock last year about ivermectin. They said it was horse paste, 
They said it wasn't safe for human beings. They said people were calling 911, Poison Control Center, ODing on horse paste, and it didn't work, and it was bad for humans. Ignoring the fact that eight years earlier, the people who developed ivermectin had won a Nobel Prize for medicine for how wonderful it is for human beings. Ignoring the fact that hundreds of millions of people have used it with no side effects, no ill effects. They lie to us for money. That's what they do. They lie to us for money. It's an evil thing. A lot of evil in the world. A lot of people keep thinking that morally the world keeps uh, evolving and getting better and more and more, well, more and more moral, you know? More and more good, less and less evil. That human nature is less and less prone to uh, being tempted to evil. A lot of people believe that. Oh, you know, it's not like it was back in the bad old days. Really? I mean, I think I present evidence on a regular basis that it actually is. We're all sinners in constant need of God's grace and mercy. All right, now it's about that time. Hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way, big old car dealership. In the middle of the USA, the believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice. Online, have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental United States. Carrie Lake, K-A-R-I, Carrie Lake, conservative Republican running for governor of Arizona, keeps on nailing the liberal mainstream media. And the most recent one went something like this. Tell me, abortion is effectively banned in the state right now. Tell me, do you, is that something that you support? I support saving as many lives as possible. And what I really want to know, and I've been waiting, I tune into you guys all the time. I want to know where Katie Hobbs stands, but ne- I never hear you guys ask for that. I'm pro-life. My plan would be that every woman who walks into an abortion clinic know that there are options out there. They don't have to choose that. There's families who would love to adopt a baby. And right now, the way it's been going... They go in and they, they only have one option. That's it. Nobody tells them that there's other options. We want to help our women. If they're afraid, we want to help them. We want to give women health care, and I want to help people. But I really challenge you, and I'm, I'm happy to get back to you on this, when you find out where Katie Hobbs stands, because let me tell you where she stands. She supports abortion right up until birth and after birth. She supports if a baby survives a botched abortion, that that baby die on a cold metal tray. And none of you ever try to get her to talk about her stance. So get back to me after you do. And tell her... That uh, I want to debate this topic on October 12th, but she really needs to show up for that debate. There you go. Yeah, we need more governors like that. Don't think she hasn't noticed Ron DeSantis. We need more governors like that. Amen. God bless Carrie Lake. You've been listening to episode 251 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show did not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy, 
This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions 7th floor of the ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier of the 10th. And that's the way it is, Monday, October 3rd, 2022.